Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us. I know for some of you, if you came in for the first time or one of the first times, sometimes it's hard to walk into a new place. We're glad you're here. If you're joining us online, thank you, too, for, for doing that. After I graduated from college, I uh, worked in a campus ministry, and the guy who was my first roommate after a couple of years decided that God was calling him to join the Marines. His dad had been a Marine. That's all he ever wanted to do. Um, and I didn't go to the swearing-in ceremony, but a, a fellow staff guy did, and he said, Andy, it was really solemn. They, they, they warn you, when you raise your right hand to take the oath of allegiance, you're turning over your life to the United States Marine Corps. When they say go, you go. When they say jump, you jump. I mean, you, you give up authority when you join. Choose the Marines. Well, it makes me wonder, what, what are the implications of choosing Jesus? What happens when we choose Jesus? Well, I want to talk about that this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to John chapter 3, we'll start in verse 22, and we'll go all the way through verse 36, wrestling with this question, what are the implications of choosing Jesus? What are the implications of choosing Jesus? If you haven't been with us, we are in about week eight of our study of the Gospel of John, and John presented um, Jesus as the eternal Son of God, and he also told us that God sent a forerunner, John the Baptist, to prepare people. It had been 400 years since Israel had had a word from God. So John the Baptist was sent to get people ready. Um, we saw Jesus attend a wedding, and they, they run out of wine. And he turns uh, two stone pots of water into wine. It was the first of what we would see would be seven signs. We've come to understand that John is kind of a prosecuting attorney, trying to convict Jesus of being the Son of God. And he's, he will give us seven signs. And John said, that's why I wrote. I was with this guy for three years in public ministry. I came convinced he was the eternal Son of God by, by what he said and what he did. Well, last week, Jesus was approached at night by a man named Nicodemus, um, who was a leader, a Pharisee, very influential person. And um, I want to know, who are you? And Jesus didn't answer him. He said, uh, you need to be born again. Well, that's not the question I was asking, but Jesus said, it's what you need. You need to be renewed. You need to be regenerated on the inside. And kind of gave the example of a, watching a 3D movie. Until you put the glasses on, you don't see the third dimension. And that's what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. You'll never understand me until you take me at my word that I'm the Son of God. Having said that, we pick up in verse 22 with these words. It says, after these things. And this is giving a sequence after the... Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, how long passed? We don't know. Um, we know his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. Now, we'll find out in John 4, verse 2, it really wasn't Jesus who was baptizing. It was his disciples, but they were baptizing in his authority. What's of note is that Jesus is baptizing at the same time John the Baptist is. John the, was also baptizing in Antioch near Salim. Because there was much water there, and people were coming there and were being baptized. And just this note in verse 24, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Most of the Gospels, the other three Gospels, start with their chronologies after John is in prison. So, John is giving us a little bit of information that the other three Gospels don't. He's starting sooner in Jesus' public ministry. 
Verse 25 says, there was therefore, therefore there was a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. The question is, what is going on with this baptizing? In Jesus' day, if a Gentile converted to Judaism, he was baptized, and some Jews would self-baptize for purification rites. But the idea that a, a Jew would baptize another Jew, was there was no, no precedent for that. There was no history. So, so what's going on here? Well, that conversation quickly pivots in verse 26. It says, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you were t- have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and here's the problem, and all are coming to him. That's a little bit of a probably hyperbole. But a lot of people are leaving, John, and, and they're going to Jesus. And, and that's a concern for us. But it's not a concern for John the Baptist. Verse 27, he says, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. John the Baptist is saying that every Human decision is under God's control. Everything that is going on is, is, is under God's purview. And any position, any authority, any house, any car, that's all under God's giving. God is in control of every human decision. Now, we all have free will. God remains in control of that. Um, Philip Yancey is one of my favorite authors. And he got into playing chess. And he got pretty good. He decided, I think I'm going to take my shot at a grandmaster. He said immediately he knew he was in trouble. And what he found out is there's 16 pieces on the chessboard. And he said it didn't matter which piece I moved where. That became a part of the grandmaster's strategy to put me in checkmate like that. He was so sovereign over the board, it didn't matter what Yancey did. Well, that's where God is with human decisions. It's free choice. But God is so in control that he just enfolds those into his plan. Uh, But John clarifies further. He says, verse 28, he says, You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. John says, I, I've got a particular part in God's work. God's doing a rescue mission, and I've got a part. And, and you guys heard me say, I'm not the guy. I'm pointing to the guy. All of us have a part in God's rescue plan. Some will be bigger, some will be smaller, some will be more noticeable, some will be behind the scenes. And we're all a part of what God's doing. And, and to push back on that, to, to be discontent is to show a lack of faith, a lack of trust that God is good, that God has you where you are by design. Now, this people slipping away, well, that's hard for a pastor to take, because that's what John the Baptist was. Remember, his ministry was so big that the Jewish authorities were concerned. And they sent out to interview him. And now, look, oh my goodness, people are slipping away, and, and John's not, not concerned. Well, that hits home for a pastor. We want our, I 
We want our ministries to grow. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't ask hard questions and we shouldn't say, where, where should we be changing and where should we be growing? We don't want to compromise the message, but can we be doing things differently? We need to add, ask hard questions. But at the end of the day, what we have is, is what God has given us. Can I, can we as a staff team be content with it? Can we as a leadership be content with that? Where God has us is his plan. But there's not only applications for, for, for pastors. Maybe you've been working at a job and, and you've been looking for a promotion and it hasn't happened. That doesn't mean you shouldn't go look for another job, but can you be content where you are right now believing that the decision not to promote you is under God's control? And again, I don't want to invite passivity here. Maybe go look for another position, but God's sovereign in that. Maybe you've been working and working at your softball game and, and, and you want to be a starter, but, but you, you know, you're not. And, and, and that doesn't mean you keep working, but you know, that ball comes awfully fast and, and your hand-eye is only such that, can you be content? Be in second string. That's where God has you. Or maybe your child is dealing with difficulties in, in, in academics and, and you as a parent or you as a grandparent, I mean, you're working, you're, you're practicing math, you're doing the spelling flashcards, you're doing whatever, and it, it's just the payoff's minimal. Keep working, but can you be content? That is where God has your child. That's, that's what we're called as people of faith, to in the end to trust God. Well, John has said, I, I, I'm not the guy. And so he, he gives the, the, uh, his disciples a metaphor in verse 29. It says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He, he gives a, a picture of a best man at a wedding. And what is the best man supposed to do? Well, he's serving the purpose of the groom. You know, at the reception, when they're giving speeches, you know, I, I don't, I, I've done a lot of weddings. They don't, they don't toast the best man. They just don't. The best man is, to it, 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 the focus is on the groom. And, and John the Baptist said, I, I've been called to be a best man. And, and I'm, pointing picture, I'm pointing people to Jesus. You know, that's true of you and it's true of me. We're not centered. We're, we're best men. We're made of honor, if you will. And we're putting somebody else center, and that somebody else is Jesus. Now, remember, the disciples of John the Baptist, they're really wigged out because, man, the whole world's going to that Jesus. And John the Baptist, what are you going to do about it? John, I'm not doing anything. I'm right where God has me. And then John the Baptist tells him in verse 30, hey, this trend is going to continue. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. The, the, the matriculation, the growth of his ministry, and the shrinking of mine. The, 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 fellas, that's going to keep going. And I was once a big deal. I was such a big deal that the authorities were, were coming out to, to check me out. I'm going to end up in prison. I'm going to end up a nobody on the scene. And that's okay. See, we're asking this question, what are the implications of choosing Jesus? Here's what I'd say. In choosing Jesus, we submit all our desires and all our dreams to him. 
You serious about Jesus? Yeah, Jesus, I'm following you. I'm raising the right hand. We submit all our desires and all our dreams to him. Certainly this has implications for pastors, but it implications all, all kinds of parts of life. You're single, and I mean, you've been single so long, you can't remember the last time you had a date, and you would like to be married, and I, I get that, I didn't get married until I was 33. <clears throat> Nothing wrong with bringing that desire before the Lord, but understand, he is sovereign in your singleness right now, and, and behind that desire to get married is, is a need to belong, and Jesus says, I want to be that need. I want to meet that need for intimacy for you. Well, I've been practicing my clarinet, and, you know, I would like to be all-state band. Well, you keep practicing. Maybe you'll get there. Maybe you won't. But if you don't, that's still in, in the sovereignty of God. And behind that desire to be all-state is a need for significance. And Jesus says, I want to meet that need. You want significance? Is that what you want? You want significance? If you were the only person in the world, I would have died for you. That's significance. Son of God says that. Andy, I mean, we get to the end of the month and, and I mean, we're struggling to make ends meet and I'd like to get a job with better pay. I, I get that. Keep looking. But understand, God's sovereign in that and, and in that desire for better pay is, is an ultimate need for security, financial security. God says, Jesus, I want to meet your need for security. All our desires, all our dreams are submitted to Jesus. Uh, verse 31, then it transitions. We're, we're no longer in this conversation between John the Baptist and his disciples. It's, it's a theological epilogue that John has, and it says this. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who speaks from heaven is above all. Jesus is a unique man. He's come from heaven, and he's got insight you and I don't have. John the Baptist said, I, I can give you stuff about man, baptism and repentance and he's the light and he's the guy, but there's stuff Jesus comes. He's been in the Father's presence. He can speak stuff that I don't know. So the first time I was out of the country on a mission trip, I was in Istanbul, Turkey, and I would have Turks come up to me and say, I want to go to the United States. How do I get there? I have no idea. I'd tell them, I have no idea. You'll have to talk to somebody in the State Department. I, I, that, 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 I, I don't know. Well, that's when it comes to the things of God, ultimately, we're deferential to Jesus. There's things we don't know. That's why we look at his word. He speaks from heaven. Words and authority that we don't have. Here's the sad part of that in verse 32. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies. And catch this. And no one receives his testimony. A little bit of hyperbole there, no one. But it's a lot of people. Comes from heaven, a lot of people, eh, I'm not interested. I don't think so. Remember last week too, we talked about it. Jesus said, if you want to understand me, you're going to have to take me at my word that I'm the son of God. We talked about looking at a 3D movie. Without the glasses, all you see is 2D. You put the glasses on, you see the third, third dimension. You're not going to fully understand me until you receive me as the eternal son of God. That's, that's faith. Jesus, I'm taking your word. You are I believe you are who you said you are. Verse 33, who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. To agree that Jesus is the Son of God is to agree that God is truthful. The Father has sent him as his representative. To reject that is to reject God. To receive Jesus as the Son of God is to agree that God is true. For whom he has sent speaks the word of God 
because he gives the spirit without measure. In the Old Testament, God would give his spirit uh, to people for certain things. David, we saw that to be the king of Israel. Elijah, the prophet. Jesus, he gets the spirit without measure. One of the beauties of the New Testament is when Jesus rose from the dead, he says to the believers, I will give you that same spirit that was in Jesus to empower you to live as Christ would have you live. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Jesus has complete authority, has complete autonomy. He can do things and understand things that we can't understand. So I worked for Campus Crusade for a number of years, and we would have our national meetings in Fort Collins, Colorado. And we would meet in Moby Gym. And there were parking lots right around Moby Gym. But we weren't allowed to park there. We would have to park a ways away. And they would have um, representatives from Campus Crusade, if somebody pulled in and started walking to Moby, they'd go, oh, oh, you can't park there. But people, I was on staff at Colorado State. So each year, they would give, a, give us a parking pass that we would put in the back of our window, and we could park anywhere. So I would drive up, and I would get out of my car, and I would start walking to Moby Gym, and they said, oh, you can't park there. But, oh, yes, I can, because I've got a parking decal on the back of, my, back of my car that gives me authority to park there. Now, my wife, sitting back there, she was on staff campus crusade for a number of years, and you never had one of those parking passes, did you, Hope? So you had to walk. You did not have the authority that I did. That's too bad. That's too bad. But Jesus' authority, you see, it wasn't a decal that you put in the back of your window. His authority was he was fully God and fully human, conceived of a union of a woman and the Holy Spirit. His authority was he lived a sinless life. He stood among his opponents and he said, which one of you finds sin among? That was Jesus' authority. It was no decal in the back of a car. That gave him authority that no man or no woman has ever had. Now you just saw me use my authority to thump my chest. That's not how Jesus used his authority. He used his authority to buy your salvation and mine. That's what verse 36 says. He who believes in the Son is eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. You stand condemned. So do I. By our very nature. You push back on God. I, I, God created you to live in relationship in, under his leadership and his direction. And you know, I said, no, I'll do my own thing. The Bible calls that sin. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to die for that sin. He rose from the dead to give you life. Listen, if I go down to Tecumseh, to the prison down there, and I say to the guard, hey, I want to get old Pete Smith out, they're going to say, who are you? Who are you? You have no authority. But if I go down with a pardon from the governor, well, then I've got authority, don't I? When it comes to getting you out of the prison of your sin, I got no authority, man. I got nothing. Jesus does. Jesus does. And he chose that to lay that authority down to make you free. Now, I'd be remiss 
If I didn't ask, have you made the decision to trust Christ? All of us have pushed back against God. Jesus died and rose again that we could be released from the sentence we're under. If you've never trusted him, I want to invite you to do that, to trust him right now, that you might know the freedom and the life he offers. Some of you here are in process. You don't know what you think about Jesus. I'm glad you're here. John took three years. We'll find out later that Jesus' uh, biological brothers didn't come to believe until him uh, until after he resurrected from the dead. We want to give you space. And as you're doing that, I ask you to consider reading the Gospel of John. And what do you think? John didn't pull any punches. He wrote to convince you that Jesus is the Christ. What do you think about that? Finally, as, as you read and we consider Jesus, and certainly we want to take hold of this, his sin offering and the ethics, but I, I think beyond that, we want to ask this question, how did Jesus live? Because it's really, really in contrast to the way we live. You talk to somebody and you say, how are you doing? And you fill in the blank for me. They say, oh, I'm so what? What am I? I'm so what? I'm so, what am I? I'm so, I'm so busy. So busy, busy, busy. I don't know how this happens, pastor. I don't know how this happens. And I think, oh, I've got insight. I'm a pastor. I know how it happens. You schedule yourself this way. That's exactly how, I don't say that, but that's what I think. That's how you get this busy. You schedule yourself. We've got a bunch of skills classes Rhythms of the family, rhythms of the life. And, and you'll see them advertised up here on the, the North Point Community Highlands. They are designed to get us to think how to live in relation to Jesus. How did Jesus live? We want to take hold of that and not only take hold of his sacrifice for sin and his ethics, but the way he lived. When I was a little boy, I grew up... Um, from ages 9 to 12, playing Little League football. And it was uh, always weight-controlled. You had a weigh-in that you, you had to make every Sunday. And there was a kid, first name Scott, 9, 10, and 11. We were buddies because we were always pushing the weight limit. And we'd be at the back line. We'd have to weigh. And during the week, we'd ask each other how we're doing. And, and um, so fourth year comes around, 12-year-old year. And, and his dad was real involved and I come to sign up, and he said, Andy, Scott won't be playing this year. Well, why not? Scott has grown too much. The weight limit was 125, and I think he was wearing about 138 pounds, and he wasn't fat. And we've just told him, you won't be trying to make weight limit. It's not healthy. He was crushed. He wanted to play so badly. Now, it turns out he was really good in high school because he was a really big kid. But the parents made a decision for your good. We're going to do something that costs you because we just think it would be unhealthy for you to try and cut and maintain 13 pounds at 12 years old, given the way you're built. You know, we're called to submit our dreams and our desires to him. And sometimes God seemingly says no. But do you understand it's always with our long-term best in mind, like Scott's parents. Like I said, he was really good because he was really big in high school. That might not have been if he had tried to cut that weight. God, why would we submit our dreams and desires? Because God is committed to us living an abundant life, fullness of life. Or will we trust him? Will we believe? 
that he's worthy of that. What does it mean? What are the implications of choosing Jesus? It means we submit every dream, every desire to him.